This is an urgent matter. Thank you. Thank you very much for your testimony. And uh, now, Dr. Randall Ray, you have five minutes. Okay, thank you for the opportunity to speak here. In my statement, I argue that federal deficits and debt are not so scary. Neither is on an unsustainable path. Rather, persistent deficits and rising debt are normal. They're not due to out-of-control spending, now or in the future. They serve a useful public purpose. They're largely outside the control of Congress. And it's hard to imagine a scenario in which they create a financial crisis, lead to insolvency or high inflation, or trigger an attack by bond vigilantes. I want to focus on um, two graphs to back up these claims. I don't know if these can be shown. Okay, there we go. Figure one shows sectoral balances. In the aggregate, spending equals income. One sector can run a surplus only if at least one other runs a deficit. The government sector is in red in this graph. And except for the Clinton years, it is always in deficit below the line. The private sector is blue, including firms and households. It's almost always in surplus, except for the decade after 1996, when the private sector spent more than its income. The foreign sector is green and in surplus since the Reagan years. That's because we run a current account deficit reflected in our trade deficit. So the usual case is the government's deficit equals the sum of the private sector surplus and the foreign surplus against us. This is an identity. You can't change one without changing at least one other balance. Those wanting to eliminate deficits have to tell us which of the other two balances will change to allow that to happen. Will they put the private sector in deficit? That's what happened in the dot-com and housing bubbles leading to the global financial crisis. Or will get foreigners run trade deficits? How? We've had a current account deficit for 40 years. Understanding sectoral balances shows why the federal balance is not under control of Congress as it depends on the other two sectors. Finally, let's address the bond vigilantes and projections of exploding interest payments on the debt. Figure 11 shows debt service is driven by interest rates, not by the debt ratio. And interest rates are determined by monetary policy, not by the debt ratio, nor by bond vigilantes. So what do I recommend going forward? I actually agree with a lot of the comments made. We don't need tax hikes or spending constraint now, when growth seems to be moderating and there's no inflationary pressure. Indeed, doing that now might depress growth so that the deficit would actually increase, as it always does in recession. The time to rein in the deficit will be when growth booms and inflation threatens. I'm not saying all deficits are good and created equal. I prefer well-targeted taxes and spending the recent tax cuts were inefficient because the main beneficiaries were high-income earners. This raised the deficit without boosting growth. It makes sense to shift taxes away from low to moderate incomes and onto high income and wealth. That raises consumption and encourages investment. Spending should be targeted to job creation and productivity increases. I don't take long-term projections very seriously. I remember when President Clinton projected budget surpluses for 15 years, retiring all the debt. The dot-com crash wiped out the surplus, and we've had deficits ever since. We at the Levy Institute warned in 1997 that that would happen. Current CBO projections have the debt ratio rising continuously. This is based on the twin erroneous assumptions that debt raises interest rates and lowers investment and growth through crowding out. That ignores positive impacts of deficits on the private sector surpluses. This doesn't crowd out spending, but increases net wealth and encourages growth. 
Instead of worrying about long-term projections that will be wrong, we should focus on formulating good policy today. So I suggest three recommendations. First, strengthen the automatic stabilizers. Spending should be more counter-cyclical, while taxes should be pro-cyclical. Policy changes weakened them over the past decades. Second, if discretionary policy is possible, raise taxes or cut spending only when the economy is overheating. There's no point adopting austerity today, only because the deficit might be bigger in the distant future. And finally, increase efficiency of both spending and taxing. The goal should be sustainable growth, rising living standards, reduction of inequality, and not to achieve some arbitrary deficit or debt number. Thank you. Thank you very much for your testimony. I now recognize Dr. Bernstein for five minutes. Chairman Yarmouth, Ranking Member Womack, I thank you for the chance to speak to this evolving area where economics... Very good. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'll yield back. Gentleman yields back. I now recognize the gentleman from Missouri, Mr. Smith, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. As of today, it's uh, been 219 days since the deadline has passed for us to propose a budget in this committee. While this committee might not realize, might not realize it, there is uh, several reasons why we go through the budget process. One, it gives guidelines to the appropriators. Two, um, in a budget resolution, we also set the 302A number allocations, um, which is, establishes the overall spending numbers. Yesterday on the floor, we saw a continuing resolution passed again, yet we still don't have the 302A numbers. Um, I'm glad that this committee hearing at least is moving more towards a, a, a hearing that a budget committee would have when you're talking about the national debt. So I think that at least that's a step in the right direction, even though we're 219 days behind. Earlier this, um, I, I just want to make a comment in regards to what some of the witnesses had said earlier about good debt um, investing in people. Uh, Mr. Bernstein made that, that statement. Um, I think a lot of times folks up here in the swamp get confused and they think of government-funded, government-spending, but it's not government-funded, it's not government-spending, it's not government debt, it's taxpayer-spending, taxpayer-funded, and taxpayer-debt. So when we talk about debt, it's not government debt, it's taxpayer debt. It's every one of the 320 plus million Americans that have the debt. And let's not get blinded by a different entity by saying government, because it all has to be paid for someday, and it's all the citizens of this country. It's the taxpayers. So remember the difference between government debt and taxpayer debt. It is taxpayer debt. Um, I know the Tax Cut and Jobs Act was brought up a couple times. Um, I represent a congressional district that is one of the poorest. In fiscal year 2001. These are programs to train people for the 21st skills of the future, but it only received $2.8 in funding for fiscal year 2019. So Mr. Bernstein and Dr. Bacard, do you think the long-term economic and fiscal consequences of neglecting investments in critical areas, such as education and skills training, could be 
more damaging than the consequences of increasing our debt? I'll start. I mean, uh, I do worry about precisely that, and this is a good example. Anyway, I just wanted to correct that for the record. Uh, and now I recognize the gentleman from South Carolina, Mr. Norman, for five minutes. Thank you so much. Uh, thank for each of you for being here. Uh, let me just reemphasize what Mr. Congressman Smith said. You know, when you say government debt, that's, that is taxpayers' debt. This thing we call government is made up of taxpayers. They're the ones who uh, put the money in the coffers uh, to make government work. So that's not some uh, term that's, I think it's misunderstood or misused by the left. Uh, secondly, I've heard several talk about tax cuts for the rich, tax cut for those at the top. Where did the bonuses come that President Trump, that we passed, that President Trump has uh, put into practice, where did the bonuses go? It went to people, people that, that, that make, up the gov make up the corporations. So I, it's, it's interesting that, you know, we, we talk about this, the thing government in, in terms as if it's not people. We talk about corporations, the rich. I think the people who have benefited the most are those that have a job now. Uh, I think the growth rates under the, the President Trump are real, as opposed to the ob obvious low growth rates under the previous administration, which hovered over 1.2, 1.5%. There is a reason people have jobs. There is a reason the growth has occurred in this economy uh, like never before. Um, uh, Mr. Ray, let me ask you, have you ever run a private business? Uh, no. Okay, so you've never had to hire, uh, make a payroll, uh, balance, of, I guess, other than your, your, your household budget, you never had to balance, make a product or um, use, uh, make sure things, you, you, you're making a profit so that you can pay the police, you can pay our schools, you can pay our first responders. You've never done that. Uh, that's correct. Okay. Let me ask you about the modern monetary theory, which I think you buy into. Um, and I think the basis of that, tell me if I'm wrong, uh, budget deficits can be financed by nations who control the currency. Yes. Okay. Are you familiar with the monetary policy of some Latin American economies, Chile? Uh, some Latin American countries, yes. Okay. What about uh, Peru? Uh, not Peru, no. Okay. Um, are you familiar with uh, some of the uh, inflation rates? And I mentioned Chile. You, do you remember what that is, the inflation rate in Chile? No. It's 500%. Do you remember the inflation rate in Peru by just printing money? 7,000%. What about Venezuela? How has that worked out? Uh, that was 10,398%. So hyperinflation hurts the little man that you're talking about you protect. Um, you know, in Venezuela today, we're witnessing the effects of a socialism, a socialistic economy that doesn't work for the people that you say you protect. Um, those are the consequences of the very monetary policy that you say you promote. Um, and I guess, let me ask each, each one of you, uh, I've got a minute 31, as you look at priorities uh, in this country that we spend on, is, does the Green New Deal add up as the top priority 
And I'd start with, well, Mr. Ray, let me start with you. Uh, I do think that we face a very serious challenge that uh, will require federal government involvement and federal government spending. What would it cost? It depends on what you include in the Green New Deal. Say, pick, a, pick a number. Okay. Well, a, a com say the complete package of greening programs could be as much as 5% of GDP for the next 10 years. Which is, give me a number. Just pick, pick a number, because I've, I've heard okay. uh, 73 trillion. I've heard. Uh, no. Not that. No. But it's top, top of the list. Over national defense, over uh, I, I don't think that we have to make a choice like that. Okay. If we're talking about adding 5% of GDP to total spending, uh, we don't have to eliminate uh, defense. That, that would bring government spending up to about 25% of GDP. Okay. Mr. Taylor. I think the highest priority is to have a faster growing economy, which benefits large parts of this economy, and as you've emphasized. Which is what the tax cuts have done. That's, I, that's I agree. It's, uh, they have been effective. Right. That's, I'm out of time. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Do the, do the other two witnesses want to respond to the question? Dr. Blanchard? The Green New Deal is indeed a, a priority. Is it the top priority? There are many other things which need to be repaired in this country, from bridges to uh, uh, other infrastructure. Uh, should it be financed by debt or by taxes? I think the answer is by a mix of the two. The only thing I'll add is when you're contemplating the cost of the Green New Deal or any other action against climate change, it's very important to factor in the costs of not doing anything about climate change. Those costs are becoming increasingly significant, and they must be netted out of whatever numbers we're throwing around. Thank you. Gentlemen's time has expired. I now recognize the gentleman from Tennessee, Mr. Cooper, for five their, minutes. Their view of totalitarianism you, and, and very little regard for human life, and I think that, that scared him. And with that, I'd like to know, um, China, of course, holds the most of our debt with $1.1 What are the economic impacts if these foreign countries decide to collect on that debt. I hear that a lot. Put it down on my level. I took first quarter uh, economics for a good reason. I was asked to. So uh, uh, sec second time around, I was told to. So if y'all could, I'd appreciate every one of y'all giving your response. Um, I think we have to worry about China at various dimensions. That particular one, worries me less than some of the others in the sense that if they were to want to sell the large amount of treasury bills and bonds that they have, they would make a very large capital loss on their holdings. I think that's sufficient uh, uh, reason not to want to do it from their own point of view. So I would not worry very much about the fact that China holds quite a large quantity of uh, government, U.S. government bonds. Um, can I add... If you look at who are the holders of U.S. government bonds abroad, and that's almost half of the debt we've been talking about, uh, they are the exporters to the United States plus offshore banking centers. Um, the way that they get the bonds is by uh, selling output to us. We use dollars to buy it. They accumulate dollar reserves at the Fed, and then they um, convert those into U.S. treasuries. 
So as long as China and other exporting nations want to sell their goods to us, they're going to accumulate dollars and they're going to very rationally convert those to U.S. treasuries. Uh, I think that any transition uh, out of uh, U.S. government bonds is going to be very slow. China uh, will eventually run a trade uh, deficit. Uh, it's going to become too uh, wealthy. Its incomes are going to be too high to be the low-cost uh, exporter in the world. Um, their population will buy more imports, and so that will reverse. But it's going to be very, very gradual. So I agree with Professor Blanchard. This is really not a worry. I, I, since I agree with uh, Blanchard, um, let me just briefly uh, say that uh, if you owe the bank $100, they own you. If you owe the bank a million dollars, you own them. That's kind of what Olivia was saying, and I, I share that view. Yeah, I think we should be uh, concerned because our debt is growing very rapidly. And many people are buying it. They won't always buy it. There is a, there is a risk. And that's not built into the usual forecast, but you can't ignore that. There could be a spiral up, and some people would say, no, that's enough. So I think it's a risk. I think the, the China is much more than that. I think they, they seem to be going back away from some of the market principles that made that economy so successful with Deng Xiaoping originally. I think the U.S. needs to be concerned about its, its own economy, its growth, its tax system, et cetera, and to continue to stress that philosophy that we've had for many years and has worked. China seems to be going in the wrong direction. That's bad for them, bad for the world as well. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you all very much for being here. Gentleman yields back. Uh, I now recognize the gentleman from New York, Mr. Higgins, for five minutes. Maybe Thank you can help me understand that. But that would seem to be an area of bipartisan agreement. Now, given that everyone uh, testified that they thought interest rates would remain low for some time uh, to come, I thought we had a sense of urgency to get uh, to work on on uh, taking advantage of low interest rates. I feel less of that sense of urgency listening to uh, listening to, to you all. I, I sometimes think we need that sense of urgency. If interest rates were five, six, seven percent on on federal debt, uh, I promise you we wouldn't be having the debt conversation uh, we're having uh, we're having now. We've made it. Too easy. Uh, Dr. Ray, you've uh, uh, been the target of a lot of uh, conservative uh, attention, uh, but uh, uh, that also makes you uh, someone who can help me bring uh, my colleagues uh, with me to the, uh, to the center. Uh, what's, your, what's your counsel? Well, we have to remember that the debt ratio is a compound term. And if we increase GDP and if we get growth going, the debt ratio will come down in two ways. High growth increases tax revenue tremendously. It reduces some kinds of transfer payments. So total spending goes down. And second, so the deficit is smaller. And second, we're increasing the, the denominator. Uh, GDP is higher. And that's the best way to reduce the debt ratio. And that is typically what has happened in the past. Our debt ratio was 100% in World War II. And then it declined over the whole post-war period until relatively recently when it started going back up again to 80%. I, I was looking through each of your uh, uh, written testimonies, uh, looking for that uh, dramatic change in productivity, uh, women entering the workforce, all of those dramatic factors that led to economic growth over the past 50 years. I didn't see any of those transformative uh, things which have me worried about about repeating that. Even at these uh, high consumption, our, our debt is not, uh, 
fueling uh, the investment we've talked about. It is fueling uh, consumption. It is fueling transfer payments. Even at these levels, uh, you believe that uh, we can only deal with one side of the equation, which is growing uh, GDP. Lo love to grow GDP. I just don't think it's, I don't think, I, I'm a growth guy. I can't do it by growth alone. I've got to have revenue. I've got to have. Uh, I've got to have reductions in in spending. Do you do you do you disagree with that fundamentally? I don't think we need reductions of spending. No. Right. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Gentleman's time has expired. I now recognize the gentleman from Virginia, Mr. Scott, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Dr. Bernstein, you mentioned the um, offsetting costs of climate change. What did you mean by that? I could cite various studies that project the costs of climate change in terms of destruction of property, uh, destruction of businesses, destruction of homes, but I don't have to cite studies. You can just open the newspaper. Uh, we see much more volatile weather uh, that uh, scientists tell you is related to climate change, uh, droughts, fires, that's what I was referring to. If we're going to contemplate the cost of doing something about that on the budget side, we must net out the cost of not doing something about it, which are, are are in the hundreds of billions, according to estimates I've seen. Thank you. Um, in terms of fiscal responsibility, they'd say we should run the budget, run the federal budget like families run their budgets. Isn't it true that a fiscally responsible family will routinely go into debt buying a house, buying a car, and sending children to college? What are comparable good debt on the government's behalf? I think the analog analogy that the government is like a family is extremely misguided in this regard. Uh, in fact, it's, it goes the other way. When, when, the, when families are tightening their belts, say in a downturn, uh, the federal government, which has the ability uh, uh, to borrow, and again, particularly at low rates, should be loosening their belts. So the idea that the federal government would contract when the uh, private sector is contracting is a recipe for austerity, uh, more specifically for more pain for the people least insulated from the pain, the most economically vulnerable families. Uh, but families do go into debt for houses. That's not considered fiscally irresponsible. No, I mean, I think that's a good example of the kinds of debt distinctions that I'm making. I mean, people will go into debt for a college which we have very little control. What, what would happen? Well, that's, a, uh, that's one of the reasons why I argue deficits matter, because uh, we are uh, exposed with a larger stock of debt to that kind of uh, problem. Gentlemen's time has expired. Now recognize the gentleman from Oklahoma, Mr. Hearn, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm thankful today in the House Budget Committee that we're actually talking about taxpayer debt for the first time. I've been here a little over one year, and uh, it's the first time we've talked about it. It's, it's encouraging. But I'm also uh, discouraged to hear that, you know, that we don't think that uh, deficits and debts matter when we talk about the modern monetary theory and that uh, Countries that can print their own money can just take care of their issues, and we don't really have a responsibility. Uh, last week, we had the opportunity to talk to the Fed Chairman, uh, Jerome Powell, sitting in your seat, and I asked him specifically about the modern monetary theory. And his, uh, he stated, quote, the idea that countries that borrow in their own currency can't get into trouble is just wrong. And the idea that debt does not matter is also wrong, end quote. Additionally, we have more than 40 leading economists were asked whether they agree with the underlying tenets of modern monetary theory by the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. 100% of the respondents disagreed or strongly disagreed with the economic principle. I don't believe that members of Congress are naive enough to believe in MMT as a way of servicing our debt. I believe that this is just a way to justify their multi-trillion dollar wish list. 
They simply cannot face up to the reality that their free proposals like the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, the Green Housing Deal are not at all free. When asked about how to pay for these programs, they can't give a straight answer. Some just argue that we will. Uh, some settle on the convenient MMT. This is not realistic. The Green New Deal, Medicare for All, and the Green Housing Deal are not realistic. and Our kids and grandkids will pay the price tag. By pretending that we can afford these outrageous proposals, we're indebting our future generations to pay for them all. We've all talked about uh, the 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act of being just so destroying of our economy. Would you all agree that we're, this year we'll have the highest revenues in the history of this country? Not nearly as a share of GDP, which in my view is the right way to but measure we'll, it. But we'll, from a pure dollar standpoint, we'll have the highest revenues ever in the history of this country. Is that correct? It's a yes or no. I mean, it's not hard. You guys are economists, all doctorates, the last time I checked. That statement is probably true every quarter uh, in our history, uh, except when we're in, in recession. The relevant measure is as a share of GDP. I mean, this is, a, this is not a partisan statement. This is a CBO view. And as a share of GDP, we're collecting 16.3% of revenues in FY19. That's a historical low point. So, so you know what? I've been here one year. What I, I would tell you that no matter what the revenue is, that we'll figure out how to spend it. I mean, would you agree with that as well? Okay, good. We got a yes or no on that one for sure. Yes, we will figure out how to spend it. There is no sense of fiscal accountability in this house. And so to say that it's wrong to put a little bit of money back in the people's pocket, because I will tell you back in the hinterland, when you get out of the beltway, they don't believe we can control any kind of spending. And to put money back in their pocket is not wrong because they don't just go bury it in their backyard, contrary to what you'd like to make everybody believe. They go spend it in their economies their local economies, which pay taxes, to fund their schools, to fund their roads, to fund everything else in their area, not dependent upon the federal government. Those are just facts. You can agree or disagree, but those are facts. You know, as we go forward here, I like what you said, uh, Mr. Bernstein, about we have good debt and bad debt. In fact, I introduced a pro-growth budgeting act uh, two weeks ago. It will never see the light of day because contrary to popular belief, most people here don't believe that you actually invest using debt. And when we talk to the ordinary people in the world, the people that are not in this room, except for our guests, appreciate our guests being here, uh, but those of us that are here talking at each other, when you talk about debt, you have some reasonable expectation of paying it back. That, that does not occur in Congress. You, you borrow money and you never pay it back. It's only been paid back four times in four years in a row, 97, 89, and 2000, in 2001 a little bit. But since then, we've been running deficits every year, which means we're not paying down any debt. So uh, it, we have a different definition of debt in this world up here. So I'd, I'd, I'd encourage you to look at that and give me your thoughts because it says if we spend a dollar or borrow a dollar, it's being borrowed and spent to actually grow the economy. I would encourage you to look at it. It's got a lot of reviews, a lot of people signed on to it. Not members of Congress, but a lot of people signed on to it. So anyway, I'd like to take a look at that. You know, as we go forward here, um, I'd like to talk about the Green New Deal, uh, Mr. Ray. If it's not 93 trillion or 83 trillion, what, what is the number that we're talking about? Because it's getting used a lot around here. I, I know you guys, you, you see this and you hear about it and it's in the press, but in our hearings, every hearing, every committee, 22 committees, has some component of a conversation of Green New Deal. Can you give me just your best guesstimate of what that's gonna cost? Net-net, I get it, you know, you're gonna save money and all that stuff, Mr. Taylor and others, but what is that number? As I said, it depends on what you include in the Green New Deal, and it could be about 5% of GDP. So only $100 billion a year? Is that what you're saying? Is that roughly? 
Uh, wow. Trillion, trillion dollars a year, trillion dollars a year. So trillion versus nine trillion. That's a big difference. I mean, because sure. up until now, I've not really heard many people argue the 9.3 trillion a year uh, number yes. that, so. I have looked at the 93 trillion um, number, which is a, an outlier, and they don't count a reduction of spending on, um, say, the destructive activities. So, so you're saying that the 8.3 trillion is what we would save versus spending only a net trillion. That's, man, I, I don't know, that's a pretty good return. Well, as I said, that was an outlier. Yeah. Other okay. estimates are nowhere near that number. Obviously, we, we don't have 20 minutes to ask questions. Right. Mr. Chairman, I, I thank you for your time. I always indulgence. enjoy giving you more time. <laughs> no, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I really appreciate it. Thank you, witnesses, right. for being here. Gentlemen's time has expired. Now recognize the gentleman. Uh, gentleman's time has expired. Now recognize the gentleman from Texas, Mr. Crenshaw, for five minutes. Oh, I'm sorry, no, the gentleman from Ohio, Mr. Johnson, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I, I'm, I'm really enjoying these. Thanks to the witnesses, by the way, for being here. I'm enjoying these conversations uh, today. Uh, you know, we're talking about the unsustainability of the federal debt. Um, and yet, this committee that is responsible for producing a budget to address our spending has not done one. Uh, so, Mr. Chairman, I, I'm, I'm going to submit to you that uh, we got to get back on track on this committee and, and produce a budget. That's our primary responsibility. You know, the federal debt is an unsustainable trajectory. We all know that. The current debt burden on every American is $70,000. Within three decades, CBO says that it's going to be uh, around $248,000 per American or almost $1 million for a family of four. Um, so mandatory spending, including interest payments on the debt, is projected to increase from $3.1 trillion in fiscal year 19 to $5.3 trillion in fiscal year 29. This is a $2.2 trillion uh, or 71% increase. So, Mr. Taylor, do you believe we should be focused on stabilizing current important programs such as Social Security and Medicare, which we know those are part of the mandatory spending that's driving the debt, right? So that we can make sure that they are preserved and strengthened. Or should we focus on expanding these programs and creating a bunch of new programs on top of them? I think the most important thing is to stabilize in the sense of have them not growing faster than GDP. And that requires reform. And that requires projections. And I think they will work better in that case. I think there could be more focus on this committee, other committees of Congress, on finding ways to reform those programs. That's what I would focus on. They are crowding out other things that have been mentioned already in this room. And then once that is determined, that's the, that's the job of our society, our democracy to determine that, then figure out about the financing. And there are reasons why sometimes you have deficits and sometimes you have surpluses. Economists have wrote about that all the time. But I think the main thing is what, is, what should be the, the spending priorities? And I believe now that it's, it's the so-called entitlements are growing too rapidly. Um, Many people have thought that the same, so figure a way to re reform that. There are proposals out there, and that's, that's the way I would go about it. 
Yeah, and and use that uh, use that ugly word entitlements because I can tell you the people Sorry, where I where I live where I represent my eighty something year old mother before she passed away they hate that word entitlements because they invested in those programs. Fine. They view they view those programs as responsibilities Absolutely. of the federal government, and and we've let them down uh, by not doing budgets by not managing the spending so that we protect those programs. You know, interest payments on the debt are already high. Uh, and are projected to grow. This year, interest on the debt is projected to be $390 billion. By 29, it, uh, it will more than double to $807 billion. Under CBO's longer-range forecast, interest on the debt will rise to 29% of federal revenue by 2049. So again, Mr. Taylor, are you concerned that an ever-rising federal debt and its associated interest payments will crowd out other important federal spending priorities, such as defense, research, health care, and meeting our obligations that American people have paid into? Absolutely. I am concerned. That's why I focused in my testimony of the costs of doing that. I think it's a cost to the economy. It's, CBO agrees it's a long-term cost. I think it's also a short-term cost and would encourage CBO to adjust their analysis to capture that as well. But it, it's, it's fundamental. It's really the most important thing. I look at the budget, I don't know why it's going in the direction it's going, need to change it, need to make it, make it more sense from an economic perspective. Okay, it's, um, in my last 30 seconds, you know, some would say that modern monetary theory simply says that uh, Americans shouldn't worry about uh, how much we spend because the dollar is the, is the um, currency of the, of the world, and because America owns the dollar, we just print it when we want it. So my, my question to you is, do, do you worry that implementing this kind of philosophy, uh, uh, the uh, MMT, could cause a loss of confidence in U.S. financial markets? Yeah, yeah, I'm worried about it for a number of reasons. It's really going back to policies that we know hasn't haven't worked in the U.S. I gave my example of the 1970s, but it's going back to countries which have not been successful. It's high inflation. I would like to see at least run, somebody run through particular proposals that are along these lines with some models, with the CBO models, so there can be some at least discussion about it. But right now, it seems to me it's going back to policies which we know in history have not worked. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. Gentleman's time has expired. Now recognize the gentlewoman from Illinois, Ms. Chikowski, for five minutes. Thank you so much. I wanted to go back to climate for a minute. I think it's perhaps the greatest challenge facing the, uh, the 21st century. Um, we have just it's estimated 11 years to cut emissions by 45 percent, have to achieve um, carbon neutrality by yeah, 2050 to stop temperatures uh, from rising. Enough. Yes, Dr. Blanchard. There's a, a marvelous cartoon. It takes place in 2050. The world has become inhab inhabitable. But there is an old man who talks to a young man and he says, yes, it is inhabitable, but look, we've reduced the debt. I think that's a very deep... <laughs> Bad choice. Uh, it is clear that we need to do something about global warming, that the cost will be high. The question, I think, is not whether it should be done. It should be done. The question is how much should be financed for taxation, additional taxation, and how much should be financed by debt. I don't think there's a simple zero-one answer to that. Some of it can be financed by debt, but to a large extent, what we do to fight global warming has very large social returns, but very low financial returns to the state. 
and therefore, if it's all financed by debt, it will complicate life later for the state. So I think it's a mix, but there's no question that we should be doing it and partly finance it by tax and partly financing by debt. The part which would be financed by debt would be called, I think, by Jared, uh, good debt. This is debt uh -huh, to improve uh -huh, the future. Uh -huh. Dr. Ray? Yeah, uh, can I add? Look, according to the scientists, and I'm not one of those, we have the technical know-how. Okay, so the question is, can we release the resources from current uses plus put unemployed resources to work to tackle climate change? And I think the answer is clearly yes. If it's 5% of GDP and use that as a measure of the resources we need, this is absolutely doable. Think about what we did in World War II. We had to move 50% of the nation's production to fight the war. We did it. The debt ratio went to 100%. The deficit reached as high as 25%. We managed to keep inflation below 10% at the peak, and most of the years much below that. We can, if necessary, I completely agree with uh, Professor Blanchard, we may find we're going to need a tax increase, or we may find that we need to postpone some consumption, to ask the workers to make a sacrifice for 10 years uh, in order to enact what we need to do to turn around this trajectory of annihilation. And we'll reward you later. That's what we did in World War II. We gave benefits, uh, Social Security, retirement, uh, health care, all those things were promised at the end of the war. Workers got them. How did we come out of that experience with a 100% debt ratio, the golden age of US capitalism? That's what we got from that. Thank you, I yield back. Uh, gentleman's time has expired. Now recognize the gentleman's time has expired. Now recognize the ranking member for 10 minutes. And we're into the lunch hour, um, which is never a good thing for the two of us who have uh, a few minutes of uh, questions. Um, first of all, thanks to the witnesses here today. Uh, going to come full circle and just ask each of them. Uh, we we kind of started this way. I, I want to go back because there's been a lot said. Um, does debt matter from the perspective of the United States taxpayer who may be watching this hearing or hearing about it? To each of my panelists today, does the federal debt matter? Dr. Bunchard. That absolutely matters. Uh, Dr. Ray. <laughs> that, was, that was a but, but I didn't give me time. We may come back to the but, but. Uh, yes, but probably not in the way you're implying. You, you said but and kept going, and I wouldn't let Dr. Blanchard do it. Yes. Yes. Okay, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. My dad always said, don't go into debt. He's a very successful businessman. Don't go into debt. Uh, for things that are not an appreciating asset. Uh, pretty sage advice, don't you think? Yes. Uh, do I get any pushback from the... No, you said my butt. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Um, and and I, I think he's right. And by the way, he operates a business today and has no debt uh, and has, a, has an extremely healthy uh, business. There have been some discussions here today about whether the family household budget that most of our constituents have a context on versus the federal budget and whether they should operate similarly. 
when it re regards debt. Now, the household budget does not have to provide for the national defense. It's not in their constitution. It's in our constitution. It's in the constitution that we're responsible for up here. But um, in terms of going into debt uh, for purposes of uh, investment, uh, growth in the economy, those kinds of things, the principles, though, between the household and the federal budget are still similar in nature. Would you not agree? I would not agree. Uh, the uh, public debt, the government debt, plays a macro stabilization role that individual debt does not. So when the government decreases its debt or has a large surplus, this has an adverse effect on the economy, which it has to take into account. This is irrelevant to you or me or any uh, household. Uh, Dr. Ray, I saw a negative response from you. Right. Because when you're looking at it from the point of view of the individual in the private sector, whether household or firm, at some point, yes, they need to repay their debt. The private sector taken as a whole never repays all of the debt. It grows over time. In the same way that the federal government's debt grows over time, it's been growing since 1791. It's been growing as a, a relative to GDP since 1791. It will continue to grow. So will the private sector's total debt. So you can't look at it from the point of view of the individual in the private okay. sector. Look at the private sector as a whole. Their debt grows over time, too. All right. Dr. Bernstein? Just as I said earlier, I think this idea that when the uh, household is tightening their belt, the government actually needs to go in the other direction. So I'm afraid I disagree as okay. well. Dr. Taylor? Uh, just to be sure, I think these so-called automatic stabilizers are good. It's been the economies in a boom. Revenues increase and spending increases, and I think it a slump goes the other way. Well, I guess here, here's where I'm going with it, um, and, and that is that uh, unlike the federal government, for the American household, there are consequences for uh, going into too much debt uh, to the extent where you do not have the capacity to repay. Uh, and there are many examples of that. Student loan debt, I think, is a, a, a real good poster child for it because there's a lot of people that went into student loan debt with a purpose of improving their earnings potential when, in fact, they didn't improve their earnings potential. In fact, a quarter of that student loan debt is not even, uh, did not even lead to a college degree. So I, th I think it was purpose-defeating in that regard. But there are consequences for my constituents for going into too much debt and not having the capacity to repay as opposed to the, to the U.S. government. Which leads me to this question. Uh, if we agree that, that debt does matter, uh, and it's just a, a discussion about the type of debt, bad debt versus good debt, and if the uh, premise that the government should have the capacity uh, to repay, and I'm not talking about just minimum payment due, just the net interest on the debt, but I mean start whacking away at, at the, uh, the long-term structural challenges. If, if that is true, then um, this, uh, the, the lack of the congressional process that this guy and I worked on, in addition to Mr. Woodall, uh, to develop a budget of the United States government and to be able to uh, put before the American people what our fiscal condition is and to begin to make those prioritized decisions, discretionary versus non-discretionary, or the mandatory side, and remember those mandatory programs are on autopilot, so unless the Congress acts, they continue to go completely unchecked. 
and it becomes a demographic challenge for the country that are moving those uh, costs higher, higher, in addition to healthcare spending that Dr. Bernstein, you talked about. So um, do you, um, would you agree with me that part of the problem that Congress has is it, it is not honoring the process that is designed to be able to put the spotlight on the fiscal condition of our country in such a way that we can begin to make those established priorities. And I, again, not at the risk of using the word poster child again, let me remind you, yesterday we passed a continuing resolution. We are seven, almost eight weeks into the fiscal year. We don't have a budget and we push the spending of the country again to the 20th of December to Christmas and we'll probably do it again, and maybe two or three more times, um, is the lack of the um, uh, uh, execution of our process or a better process contributing to the problems that we're facing today. Dr. Blanchard. I would not think of myself as an expert on these issues, uh, but yes, from where I stand at a distance, it looks like the congressional budget process is not ideal and could be substantially improved. Dr. Ray? Or does the process okay. matter? Look, capacity to repay. I'm not sure what that would mean for a federal government that is an ongoing um, uh, concern that has only repaid its debt one time, 1837, followed by our first depression. We do not have to repay the debt. What we have to do is make the interest payments. That's okay. what we need to do. All right, well, all right, so let me hit pause here a minute and just focus on interest payments uh, for just a moment. Today, uh, as evidenced by one of the, uh, a couple of our members have indicated that the net interest on the debt this year with very low interest rates is gonna be somewhere in the neighborhood of $400 billion, which is more than half of what we spend on our constitutional challenge to provide for the common defense of the country. Um, and, and there's been the term crowding out used many times here today. We are crowding out the investments that you gentlemen are suggesting that we continue to make to grow our, grow our economy, help uh, vulnerable Americans. The things that we would normally spend that money on we're spending on the net interest on the debt. That's money that could be being spent elsewhere, which I think makes my point that deficits and debt do matter because it is crowding out the available money that we have to be able to effectively fund the discretionary budget of the U.S. government. Well, I your mean, turn. you put that constraint on yourselves, and I understand your political uh, dilemma here. Interest payments, I think all three of us agree, are a very inefficient kind of spending. First, half of it's going abroad. Okay, and the other half is going into the United States, but it doesn't tend to go where you want it to go. It doesn't tend to lead to economic growth. So I'm not advocating trying to ramp up interest payments. Crowding out theory, there are two approaches, one loanable funds, the other is ISLM. The, the evidence just does not show that there's crowding out. Now, it may crowd out your spending because you put constraints on uh, the, the budget, budgeting process. It doesn't crowd out in the real world by raising interest rates and reducing investment. All that government spending goes somewhere into the economy and it creates a net income for the private sector, which should encourage investment rather than discouraging investment. So, so the constraints that you suggest that we put on ourselves are only there for, for one reason, and that is not to explode this deficit and debt situation 
even further exacerbate the situation as we currently have, which most people would agree is already beyond any capacity for us to be able to repay, and it's just going to lead to further complications in taxes for future generations. Dr. Bernstein, real quickly, uh, a thought from you, and then well, I'll Well, just to Dr. on the process point, because what you said resonates with me. I'm going to be uh, straight with you about that, about the broken process. But the, I immediately went back to, I believe it was 2011, and the balanced budget uh, the balanced budget uh, agreement that, you know, has created this so-called super committee, I view that as being, a, you know, just a huge process failure. So That was I, 2011. Yeah, 2011. I, Not our joint select committee. No, 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 I'm just oh, saying, okay. right. I say that, that, that I think the problems go deeper than process. I agree with you the process is broken, but I think there are fundamental differences about the kinds of investments that we're arguing about today, good versus bad, about the, the amount of revenues that we need to collect. And I feel like before we can have a reasonable process, we probably have to talk more about those differences. Dr. Taylor. So I think going back to regular order would be tremendous. Budgets come from the president, the budget committees go through it, the appropriations and you got a budget by October 1st. It would just be uh, so clear to people compared to what's happening now. No one, this is a democracy, supposed, people are supposed to be somewhat informed. It would improve the process greatly. I would encourage you to try to do that. Okay, and I've just got one final question, and it's related to our process because our committee, uh, which I think did extraordinary work, we, we came up a little bit short, but not because we didn't really work hard at it because we spent a year doing it. Uh, but the, the one thing that I think we kind of rallied behind was regarding debt is some kind of a target. We've talked about it already today, debt to GDP, which I believe I've given up hope that we're going to balance the books of the federal government. It's certainly not in the time frame I'm going to be here. But at some point in time, should this country not have a reasonable target of debt to GDP, pick the number. I don't know if it's 42, the historical average, or if it's 65 or use whatever that number is, but some kind of a target so that we can at least begin to somewhat uh, 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 conduct ourselves as um, uh, people who can constrain the, the absolute growth of federal government, which can go out of sight if you don't. Real quickly, uh, from left to right. I think that the issue is that we really do not have a good sense of what the debt target is. And choosing a number comes with dangers uh, of trying to do something which may not be quite the right thing. So I'm, I'm with you in spirit. I would have a very hard time deciding what the number should be. Dr. Ray. Absolutely agree. I can't see any... Um, I think you should focus on the things that are important. Okay, employment, rising income, economic growth, rising productivity meeting the challenges that face us in the future. Dr. Bernstein. Yeah, I, I would urge you to think about that much more dynamically. Imagine we had a debt target in, uh, in World War II uh, and we didn't gear up to fight that existential battle. I'm sure you would, you would be opposed to that. So I, I don't yeah. think targets are, are, are a good idea. Okay, Dr. Taylor. I think, I think targets are a good idea with emergency clauses to deal with this. Amen. I yield back my time. Thanks for allowing me to go over. Absolutely. And congratulations on Louisville being number two. Thank you. By the way. Um, we're, we're loaded. People need to look out for us. Um, well, I yield myself 10 minutes. Uh, thanks We've again had this to our conversation a lot. Right. Uh, I just want to say, <clears throat> yeah, uh, so there were several references to MMT, and they all seem to equate it to printing money. That is not MMT. We describe the way the government actually spends. I think what they have in mind is something much closer to quantitative easing, 
in which uh, the uh, the Fed spent three, four trillion dollars buying assets, essentially by crediting bank accounts with reserves. That is nothing like what uh, MMT is recommending. We are asking you to look at uh, government debt uh, deficits in a different way to take account of sectoral balances. If you're going to reduce the budget deficit, we need to know which one of those other two sectoral balances is going to change. Are we going to be reducing the private sector's surplus? Uh, are we going to make the private sector run deficits? Are we going to somehow get the trading partners to decide not to sell stuff to the United States? Something has to happen. You can't just raise the tax rate and think that you're going to balance the budget or reduce government spending and think you're going to balance the budget because those, one of those other two sectors or both of them has to change what they're doing. Uh, let me just, and cutting health costs is cutting GDP, cutting uh, government spending is reducing the injection of government spending into the economy. Reducing the amount of um, uh, debt that is issued is also reducing the net financial assets that are being accumulated by the private sector. That's going to have some kind of consequences uh, for the private sector. So we need to look at both sides of the equation of government spending, and, but also of government debt, which is held as an asset, the safest asset in the world. The world wants more of it. You know, so why are we so worried about giving the world what they want? The, the, the last thing on the um, uh, robots taking away all our jobs, as uh, Professor Blanchard said, this has been going on for 200 years. It's usually a good thing. Uh, I think it probably will continue to be a good thing, but uh, what should uh, the government do about this? We do need training. We do need uh, education uh, because robots are pretty good at taking away the jobs of the lower skilled and lower educated workers. There's some way off from taking away our jobs. Uh, maybe someday that will happen, but we need to worry about the, the people at the bottom end uh, that will be replaced probably pretty quickly. We need to educate them. I don't like the idea of um, a basic income guarantee or just telling people, look, sorry, in the modern economy, there's nothing that you can do. No, we have to find jobs for these people, and we need to train them for jobs. Uh, I thank you for that. And, uh, I, well, I'll go to Dr. Blanchard first. I was looking at my notes. Mm -hmm. uh, I two points. The first one is a nerdy one, which is that if you look at interest rates and debt. It's true that interest rates have decreased while debt was increasing. To conclude from this that therefore there is no effect of debt on interest rates would be wrong. This would be mixing correlation and causality. I think what has happened is many other factors have led to a decrease in interest rates, which have nothing to do with debt. It may well be that debt still has a positive effect on rates. It just is hard to see because of all the other things which have happened. 